Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face to face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. In this episode of Anchored, I reached out to past guests from the show to ask them your questions. In today's episode, I speak with Amy Hazel, Simon Gosworth, George Cook, Dr. Andy Danielchuk, Scott Baker-McGarva, John McMillan, and Jerry Darkus about the subjects you'd like to know more about. I plan on making this a monthly addition to the series and I'm hoping you will email me more of your questions. Please just send me an email to info at aprilvokey.com and let me know your name, where you're from, who your question is for, and of course, what your question is. There are a few things that make me as proud as the Anchored community, and I honestly cannot thank you guys enough for the time and open-mindedness that you bring to this podcast. Thank you. Hi, April. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good, thanks. How's your weather over there? John McMillan is a renowned steelhead biologist. He's the son of famed Bill McMillan, who is also a biologist, and both of them have devoted their entire lives to the protection of the West Coast wild steelhead stocks. So John, Julian from England is asking if you can please elaborate on the barometric pressure and its impact on fish. Sure, that's not a problem. Um, You know, I went through some of the science that I have on the topic and then picked up a few new articles and the first thing I want to say is to anglers, it sounds like it's something that's almost written in stone, like barometric pressure really matters. And we rely on it really heavily as one of the criteria. But when you dig into the science a little bit, whether or not it, it really affects fish and how strong that effect is seems to uh, be a bit murkier. So offhand, I'd say first, yes, it likely matters because when the barometric pressure changes, that influences the air bladder in the fish. And when that air bladder contracts or expands, which it does when the barometric pressure changes, that can make those fish comfortable. What they really appear to not like is kind of these prolonged periods where you have either really high or really low periods of barometric pressure. They seem to, I'm going to stare for a second because I think I'm going to go on too long and I don't want to do that. You can can take (laughs) as long as you'd like. Yeah, okay, so I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit and go back to the barometric. So we, it does likely matter. We know that, you know, when the barometric pressure changes, that influences the air bladder, and that can make the fish uncomfortable. But there's differences to think about. And the first difference is if you're fishing in a lake, fish can simply move up and down in the water column to uh, mediate the situation. So the deeper they go in the water column, the more pressure is on their air bladder. And the higher they go in the water column, the less air pressure is on their bladder. And just a fish going down about 10 or 20 feet in the water has more of an effect on their air bladder than any of the barometric pressure changes they might experience. And I like to give an example that I read online, which is imagine when you're swimming in a river or a lake and you dive down about 10 feet and you have to pop your ears. And so the fish are going through those same types of 
of changes in feeling that pressure that we do. So we know that barometric pressure has this effect on the air bladder and that extended periods where the barometric pressure is relatively stable can lead to good or bad fishing conditions that are not necessarily linked to barometric pressure. But what we do know is that fish tend to get more active when there's a change in the barometric pressure. And so, for example, when the barometric pressure declines and you have a storm front moving in, those fish tend to become more active. And the same is true when the storm front passes. So if you're a steelhead fisherman, you think of fishing a river on the rise during the first few hours of a storm or fishing the, fishing the river on a drop. And if you're a trout fisherman, you know, you, you think about how those trout or, or any feeding fish might want to try and uh, accumulate as many food sources as possible. In other words, they want to feed a lot during those periods when the barometric pressure is changing because they don't know how long that period of a storm or calm weather is going to last. So they like to, based on what I can find, is that fish that are feeding like to feed during those barometric pressure changes. Fish that aren't feeding like steelhead, it's really hard to figure out whether or not barometric pressure is really having an effect. But what the research suggests is that they do become more active during those periods when it changes. But again, I think the hard part in all of this is that when the barometric pressure changes, we tend to get a storm front coming in, right? And when the storm front comes in, if you're fishing a river, that means the water temperature tends to get colder. The stream flow levels can rise if it rains. And when the stream flow levels rise with rain, they can become murkier too or less visible. And the opposite is true when the barometric pressure goes the other way. When you get a high pressure area coming in after a storm, the fish just need a, a period of a day or two to apparently kind of equilibrate to those changes. But again, I think I just go back to this is one of the areas where science is really unclear because we cannot untangle barometric pressure effects from changes in things like water temperature, wind conditions, sky, rainfall, snow. And based on what we know, it looks like changes in water temperature and stream flow and visibility are likely having a much stronger effect on the fish than barometric pressure. I kind of sum it up as really long periods where the barometric pressure is stable, fish kind of acclimate to that and, and they're not as, not as consistently active. But when you have those changes in barometric pressure when a storm is coming in or when a storm is leaving, I think those are the periods when fish become more active. The hard part is figuring out whether it's really the barometric pressure itself and that effect on the air bladder of the fish or whether it's those other factors like water temperature, stream flow, and visibility. And I mention that because fish that we have living in rivers can't really migrate down 10 or 20 feet to the bottom of a river to equilibrate their, their air bladder to feel more comfortable, but they can rise to the surface and they can gulp air to fill up their air bladder more, or they can essentially burp and let air out of their air bladder. So fish have a number of ways that they can kind of physically deal with this, right? It's like us popping our ears when we go up in elevation or, or, or maybe burping when we add a lot of gas. So when we see them porpoising sometimes, that's what they're doing. They're gulping air. I think a lot of times it is, and I didn't understand that until I started using a, um, a video recorder underwater. And what I noticed is when those fish would roll and then come back down to the surface, they all had air bubbles streaming out from their gills. Mm. suggesting that they, ha they had to have gulped air because the air is coming out of their mouth now. And so in the opposite way, like when a female steelhead or a salmon is spawning and they arch their back 
to get deep down into the red, they often exhale all of that air that was in their air bladder so they can get to the very bottom of the river surface. And then they'll go up and rise, rise then shortly after to gulp air to get their equilibrium back. And then they will kind of repeat that process over and over again. That is fascinating. Now, do all fish spawning do that or just steelhead? I'd imagine all fish who spawn. I would imagine so. I mean, I know salmonids do it, so I've seen a lot of species of salmonids. What I'm not sure is if other fish, like fish that broadcast spawn, you know, that just kind of lay their eggs out there and don't take a red and don't have to be at the bottom of the river, they might not do that. But I think one of the points to people is that in a lake or a big ocean, barometric pressure can likely have big effects that makes the fish change where they are in the water column. They might go deeper, they might go shallower. But in a river, where the water column is already relatively shallow, the fish have their own physical means of kind of regulating the pressure that they feel on their air bladder. They're not completely at the mercy of the barometric pressure, which is why I tend to think that factors like water temperature, stream flow, and visibility are probably more important than barometric pressure when you fish in a river. My next question comes from Brian from Oregon. He wanted to ask guide, former shop owner, and major brand rep Scott Baker McGarva if he scales the size of the fly that he's fishing to match the size of the river. It's a good question. Yeah. Well, that's a common question, you know. I uh, I, I scale the fly most of the time to the water color, water conditions. So, you know, if the water is, even though it's a small stream, if the water's up, and the visibility is down, obviously you want to go to a bigger fly the fish can see better, in theory. That said, I have fished enormous flies in low clear water with success. But usually as a change up, uh, maybe I can see a fish, and so you're trying different things at it to see what, what it would come to. And I've had you know, fairly reasonably good success with, with a big fly, even in clear water. So I don't dismiss it as a tactic but generally if i'm just fishing a client or somebody um through a regular piece of water and the water's low i'll definitely fish a smaller fly and uh and sort of stick to that program and you know like i said unless i see a fish and it doesn't want to take and i want to try to do something else to change its opinion the only other time i've had good success fishing bigger flies and the fish don't seem to be half as spooky yet is right when they first come in the river. So uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, for example, Haida Gwaii, the fish come right in from the ocean. We're fishing them, you know, some runs right above the tidewater influence. And the fish come in and they're quite aggressive and they're not, they're not too freaked out about their environment yet, it seems. And I've had fish, you know, have no concerns over eating what I would consider a pretty big fly for the water. In a small stream anyway, and those streams are big enough, you know, you could false cast across them. One of the things I was going to mention that would be curious is, when you think of what people fish for other tackle, like for a long time, you know, so much steelhead tackle and it was, you know, small, small lures, small flies, you know, now with the big advent of guys fishing jigs and fishing, uh, you know, the six inch pink rubber worm, you know, invented in, in Southern BC. Now it's, you know, it's a common lure everywhere. And you think of how big that is in the water and you look back on flies. I mean, I don't think any fish, any fly that's equivalent to a six inch pink rubber worm, even a big mole leech is maybe three, four inches long. But one thing I would note is sometimes in low clear water, fish a big fly, but I'll fish a big fly in a darker color, like black, black and red, black and blue, but you know, not a fluorescent pink giant fly, more a you know, a, 
my favorite, you know, black, blue, red head kind of fly. Why is that? You know, big sucking leech. Yeah, why not fish a um, bright I don't know, I just pink, think... Uh, or why not fish a bright pink six-inch worm fly? Well, yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I could see fish, and I was watching a guy fish to them, and, and we fished big pink flies to them, and, and we weren't getting a reaction, and I was kind of surprised because I don't think these fish had ever been fished before. And kind of as a last stop effort, I said, hey, you know, put on that big, you know, black and blue flashy looking one and uh, swim that through there before we move on. And the guy, the guy threw it in the pool and I could see the fish. And before the fly even got near the fish, maybe five, eight feet above where I could see the fish in the deeper water, he had a tug and he lifts back. And I see this chrome bar fish come out of the bottom of the pool and go tearing out the tail out. That fish saw that big pink fly. There's no doubt about it. Right? I didn't see the fish because it was in a little bit deeper water. But that made me start to realize that, oh, and now these are wild fish, right? So they react maybe better to, to you know, different types of flies than obviously hatchery fish. But it, it taught me a quick lesson on, oh, even fresh fish in the winter, you know, don't, don't discount the big black and blue and, uh, you know, color phase of fly. This is maybe four years ago, you know, uh, black and blue was such a, uh, a staple in the summertime and fall boxes, but in the winter boxes, I just didn't use it as much. And that started me using big dark flies in the winter all the time. If I had two clients, one would fish big and, and dark and one would fish, you know, traditional bright or pink or orange or something. And the black blue fly caught plenty of fish. So it became a bit more of a, of a staple. Interesting how many clients, particularly clients from the U.S. who weren't used to dark flies in the winter, would kind of give me the stink eye on that. You know, say, what? You know, that fly? It's kind of a summer fly, isn't it? And you're like, no, no, just cast it, right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I, uh, it caught plenty of fish, you know. And, and, I, you know and, a, and a funny side story to that, years and years and years and years and years ago, on the Sauk River in the States, we were fishing across from some guide in his boat. And we're throwing flies and fishing through, and we fish this whole run and gaming. And the guy on the other side starts kind of talking to us across the river. So, you know, yelling, but not screaming. And he starts asking, Hey, where are you guys from? Who are you? We didn't know why he was quizzing us. And we said, well, We're from British Columbia. Why? And he goes, uh, Oh, I figured you're Canadians because you're fishing dark flies. I don't and get I it. went, Wow, interesting. Oh, cool. Well, hey, what's your name? He goes, Yeah, my name's Deck Hogan. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, so he, he knew Canadians who'd come down and fish the Skagit. We'd come down and fish all these dark fly patterns. And because he didn't recognize us as local guys and we weren't being guided or whatever else he thought, he, he concluded that the dark flies, those guys must be Canadians. Because he could see us, you know, we may be 75, 80 feet across the river. But he could see, but he could also see our flies flying through the air. And but Harry I always thought that was Stacey. kind of a funny... Sorry, that I think there's a bit of a delay on the phone, but Harry Lemire and Stacy always fished like olive sculpin patterns. Yeah, and and you know that whole buggy, you know, yeah, the, the Lemire sculpin and and that whole buggy phase. I know spring flies. You know, a lot of guys fish olive uh, and orange is a good mix for a springtime fly. You know, when the fish are, you know, water starting to warm up. You know, you may be looking for a different reaction. You know, it's interesting that, you know, it's just like the guys that fish Atlantic flies for, for steelhead and the guys who fish steelhead flies for Atlantics. There's always this perception that somehow that won't work because it's not traditional. Yeah. And then it works. And and next thing you know, there's an adaptation to, I don't think we're going to fish Durham Rangers and Silver Doctors as much 
you know, but just the overall change up, which I always laugh that, you know, the fish doesn't know what it's looking at. It doesn't look at a fly and call it out by name. It, it sees something coming towards it. It's fished in a certain fashion. It's probably going the correct speed. Fish reacts to it and, you know, has a bite. But very interesting to note that, you know, the big pink, which always seems to be such a good winter color, you know, to have fish turn it down and yet, you know, come after and eat a, a dark fly in the same waters, you know, was a definitely cruel observation and and one that sort of stuck with me for a long time. So if you're fishing a larger fly in a smaller river that's murky, save for fresh mm-hmm. fish, would you mm-hmm. then, on the other hand, be willing in a larger river that's got clear water with stalefish, would you fish a smaller fly? Or would you still fish a big fly? No, I would I would fish a smaller fly sometimes. There there was a there was a you know, a couple springs ago in the home river here in Squamish that uh we were really in this big fly kick. But we started to notice that the fish that lay in really shallow riffly water and they're driven there by they're driven there by predators. And so it's very hard sometimes trying to fish those bigger flies to you know, fish in shallow water because the big fly just once there's no really any tension on the line, it wants to sink into the rocks. So how could we fish a lighter fly right in close to the beach? And all of a sudden, we were going back to smaller, much more sort of traditional flies because we could swing them right into the beach. Maybe maybe a plastic tube fly would have you know done the same thing, very light in the water. But at that time, you know, I remember putting on a, a sort of an old school you know, uh, small orange body, white wing, kind of Squamish standard type fly because you could fish it right into the rocks. And, and of course it caught some fish and the fish were in kind of shallow water because of predation, which also kind of made them a bit more nervous, you know, in general, it's what do they fear more, you know, the fishermen or the seal? Well, they don't know the fishermen. So, so they're there to hide from the seal. And so therefore the smaller fly that swung into him wasn't probably, he didn't have the shock value of a big fly coming at him. Whereas we'd been fishing other spots, you know, that with, with bigger flies just because they were aggressive fish. And we kind of, in our mind, felt like we were covering our water better with the bigger fly. We figured it had more visibility to the fish. But we all know that fish see just fine, you know, as far as it's on the, in the angler's head about, you know, oh, that fly's too small. He won't see it. Well, we've, we've seen how that doesn't always hold true. But uh, in the winter months, it always seemed like bigger would kind of shock the fish a bit because of the cold water and the whole theory that they needed a little bit of a, a, a prodding to get them to grab, and, and a big, bright fly would do that. My next question is for Mr. Personality, Mr. George Cook himself. While George is probably best known as a sales rep for Sage, Rio, and several other substantial companies, he is also a skilled Chinook salmon angler and is the inventor of the Alaska Boo Fly Series. Lay it on me. Okay, Rick from Alberta would like to know how important is depth of fly when fishing in sunny, cloudy, or rainy conditions? Well, I think a lot of this would apply to most, but we'll we'll play it as it relates to Chinook with kind of an override, you know, to steelhead and sea run browns, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got a river system that is flowing in such a way that a morning sun is going to take quite a while to get on it, then I think 
your fly depth and just your ability to really be in the game is in way better shape than, say, that same piece of water once the sun begins to really impact it. Because take the Dean. Dean's a great example. You've been there tons. You've got a downstream flow on a river that is essentially flown east to west. So if there's an eastern rising sun, which we know it to be, you know, you've got X amount of period in the morning before that gets sun impacted. And those fish lying in those runs on that river running from east to west are taking a direct hit with an eastern sun or an overhead sun. And so one of the reasons why it's good early and it's good late are those factors. I think with sun impacting the water, fly depth is way less important than it would be with powerful sun simply because the fish have got the, you know, and that we haven't provided sunglasses to Chinooks or Steelhead that I'm aware of yet. And so therefore... You know, if, if the sun's in their eyes, it may not, they're just not in a viable position to begin with. But yeah, if you could get deeper in that sun, your odds would go up. But I, I still think big sun impact is negative impact. And I would, I would say to Rick or anyone else listening that this is why when we get a cloudy day, whether we're in Terra del Fuego for Browns, Steelhead anywhere, and most certainly Chinook, particularly in, you know, that, you know, those summer run Chinooks, late May, June, July, we get a cloudy day. We, you know, hey, that's your day. That's your day to be out there from start to finish and to fish confidently, particularly during those hours that normally might be sun engulfed. What about the rain? In terms of Depth impacting, eh, I think, well, rain obviously will be associated with clouds and darker sky format. So we kind of get that. I've certainly hooked Chinook in Alaska in rain, light rain, moderate rain. I can remember one day on the Connect Talk years ago in a virtual downpour hooking, hooking a couple in a particular run. But I, I think that kind of goes just that would create surface disturbance, which is maybe creating an audible issue, but not a visual issue. So, you know, but give me a choice of sunshine in T-shirt weather versus clouds, light rain. I'll take the light rain in an anadromous mode anytime, anywhere. What do you mean by an audible mode? You mean they can physically hear the Meaning rain? sound. Oh, I suspect that hitting the surface of the water is creating some level of, of noise, just the same as a jet boat running on the surface, or you and I sitting in a tin shack out of that rain is creating some level of audible noise. Interesting. Do you think that that would, I mean, you're right. Do you think that that would affect their behavior at all? It, it might make them the fish equivalent of the white-tailed deer I was just hunting here in Texas, which when it's windy, which is obviously, you know, there's a noise factor with that. But more importantly, 
it creates kind of a sensory depredation, if you will, meaning that they've lost some aspect of their normal awareness and it might put them a little more on guard. And if they're not comfortable and not relaxed, you know, I think it would be probably safe to assume that they might not be as aggressive because they're not as happy. And, and deer with high wind, particularly whitetails, not so much mule deer, although it affects mule deer, but, you know, prairie mule deer from your deer Canada, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, they get used to it. But I don't think whitetails ever really get used to it. And we don't know enough about fish. But I suspect anything that takes them off that happy stance may have them to where they're, they're not really kind of in the flow like we'd want them to be. Thank you for calling Rio. This is Jill. Hi, Jill. Sorry to bug you again. Is Simon there, please? They don't make him any better than Simon Gosworth. Originally from England, Simon was brought to America by Rio Products, where he eventually worked his way up to become the company's marketing manager. He is also one hell of a caster. Question by Sarah in Michigan, and she would like to know if you can please explain how to match your Skagit line to your fly rod. Well, that is a tricky question only because of, as you know, the bay rods and are rated in line sizes and the Skagit lines are rated in grain weights these days. So she's not the only one to have that same question. About a billion people have that question. There's a general conversion, a guideline conversion that I guess the resources are kind of floating out there, lost in cyberspace, but mostly, I mean, on the Rio website, there's a, there's a kind of a conversion thing there. But in a, in a nutshell, if it's a nine weight, it's going to be taking somewhere around 600 to 650 grains. If it's an eight weight, it's 550 to sort of around 600. If it's a seven weight, it's going to be between 500 and 550. There's a kind of a ballpark grain weight conversion that hopefully I've kind of hit one of the nails on the head with those three sizes. There's a, a, an unofficial standard that most rod and line companies kind of follow, and that's those three sizes would kind of cover that. What about length of line, Simon? Does it is there some sort of calculation that goes along with that? What was it that I well, about? oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're you're dead right. I mean, yes, there is, and there, no, there isn't. The industry likes to sell gear, and so of course the industry has these. Oh, for short rods you need this short head, and for long rods you need this longer head. And whilst there's some certain amount of truth in that, that does not take into account the caster's ability and talent and how deep they wade. If somebody's wading up to their chest in water with a long rod, they've made it a short rod. So there, there are guidelines. I like it real. We have a, a long max for rods over about 13 and a half foot. And we have a short gadget line for rods that are under 12 foot kind of switch rods. So there are guidelines that kind of help you out. But as I said, as you change depth in wading, then these are no more than guidelines that they, they, they're starting points and people will find that they will have to adjust once they if they go from casting ankle deep to casting chest deep, then then the line's going to have a different performance. It'll also find a different performance if they go from a 15-foot tip to a 5-foot tip. Sadly, there's no exact answer to that. But the simple way is, yes, there are shorter heads for shorter rods under 12 feet and longer heads for the longer spay rods of 13 and a half, 14 foot. What was it that I had heard about having a, a sink tip on and the overall line length needing to be around three times the length of the rod. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it does. And again, that kind of early Skagit days we did that. They were they were 
guidelines that started off, I think the very first Skagit stuff started off as a three to one ratio. So 12 foot rod, total of 36 feet. So if you had something like a 26 foot Skagit head and a 10 foot tip, there's your 36 foot. Those measurements include the sink tips, not just the Skagit on its own. Then as Skagit got more and more popular and you had people like Ed Ward and Scott O'Donnell and, and, and guys going out there and really fishing these, they started to shorten those ratios. Three to one now would be considered a pretty big ratio for a two-handed rod, I think, these days. It's more like 2.6 or 2.8 to one. Um, but those were always good starting guidelines. But again, they, they didn't factor in the depth of wading. These were just starting points for somebody completely new, just getting something to start off with amongst a sea of, or this plethora of lines and tips that can, can cause an awful lot of confusion. So that three to one is still a, a simple guideline. That's a good starting point, but you're not going to go inherently wrong if you don't follow three to one. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't factor in you know, depth of weighting. And even in a situation when you're trying to cast off of a bank and you've lost suddenly four feet of, um, you know, you've lost four feet. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they, that fact is not taken in by many people. Not mine, because you can't, right? You can't, you know, you'll, you'll step three paces down the pool and suddenly you're a foot deeper. You can't make a simple formula that is going to take into that into account. So I think the simple formulas really do work. I, I, I And I live by them. I teach my, my students that. I say to them, look, when you're Skagit fishing, here's your guideline. Rod times three should match your uh, Skagit line plus any tip you put on or sinking versa lead or anything like that you put on. Uh, and that's a starting point. And play around with that. If you find that you're, that you're having a lot of problems, like if the ratio is too much for them, the line's too long, they'll get these little bloody L's, as you know, and then if their ratio is too short, they'll blow their anchor all the time. So I give them these, this three to one as a, a kind of a, a parameter, a guideline, but hey, if you're blowing your anchor, maybe you need three and a half to one, or hey, slow down, take a chill pill. And if you get a bloody L's, then maybe your line's too long, or speed up, or you're doing a dreaded dip with a bloody L. <laughs> you're you're so English. My next question is from Mike in Ontario, and the question is for Jerry Darkus. Jerry is a longtime sales rep, but he's also an author. He just so happens to be the author of the only book solely written about fly fishing the Great Lakes themselves. Mike's question is, when carp fishing, how do you know if you should fish a nymph or a streamer? Well, there's a few different ways to look at and approach that. A lot of the flies that we use for carp are almost crossover patterns to a certain extent. Some are nymphs, pure nymphs, and others are kind of like nymph-streamer combinations in that. And I know that sounds a little vague and weird, but you know we've got patterns like hex nymphs of which are super, super productive for carp, even like small crayfish patterns, stuff like that. You know, they can be fished almost as a as a true nymph or streamer. But I think what I would do first, maybe even prior to specific fly selection, would be just see what mode mode the fish are in. Normally, in a small stream or small river situation, again, in my experience, uh, in order to have any type of consistent success, uh, you need to identify feeding fish. And it's pretty pretty easy to identify, you know, feeding carp when they're in the shallow water, even if it's off color a little bit. You know, you'll either see tails sticking up or you'll see, you know, mud spots where the fish are down 
and rooting around in the bottom. So that's really, I think, the key in those situations to to get them to eat a fly. At that point, you, you do have some choices as far as what to present to them. And, you know, from a nymph standpoint, uh, a true nymph pattern, probably something, a rubber leg hair's ear, you know, uh, a bead head, rubber leg hair's ear, size 10. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty generic pattern that looks like a lot of different things. Natural colored, black, olive. You need to see what direction that, that fish is moving and you need to get that fly in front of the fish. And at that point, keep an eye or just watch the fish and see what it does. The water's clear enough. If you see that fish kind of move forward, you know, towards the direction where your fly is sinking, I would say tighten the line up and see if there's any weight on it. Don't wait to feel a strike because you're not going to. The fish will tell you what's going on if they've seen the fly. And, and if you see that movement, and the other thing too is you'll almost see like their fins will like just kind of like shoot out. Uh, it'll just be like a, a different type of movement that shows some excitement on their part that they saw that fly and that they moved for it. So again, that's smaller river, small stream, mostly clear water. Uh, if the water's off color a little bit, you know, you can throw into the mud, let the fly sink. And again, just slowly tighten up. Sometimes they'll just inadvertently take the fly in. If you feel weight, you know, then just tighten up a little bit harder and let the fish actually turn and then set the hook. And then the fun starts. Do they Uh, ever create like a nervous water or make the water ripple? Uh, yeah, yeah, they will just like, you know, very similar in, uh, like you would find in a saltwater situation. Absolutely. You know, what we try and find though is, you know, having enough clarity where you can see what's going on. You know, of course that may not always be possible, but in that case, yes, you know, lead that and, and at least throw to it and try. What I have found uh, is if the fish are really moving steady and not really making any signs of stopping the feed, your chances are pretty slim as far as hooking those fish. So again, I think, you know, finding that feeding fish is is really a key to that smaller stream, small river success. Now, once you go to bigger water, that whole thing kind of changes a little bit. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to, to really spend a fair amount of time chasing them in some of the the key locations around the Great Lakes, like up in uh, uh, Grand Traverse Bay, Lake Michigan, uh, Beaver Island in Lake Michigan, in uh, other places. And there you've got, you know, hard flats. I mean, it's like being in the Bahamas or Belize or a place like that. Those fish are much more apt to come and take a fly even when they're in that cruising uh, mode. And, and I don't know why that is, but it just is. Again, if you can spot feeding fish, I would always say that's your, your best option. Uh, those fish are interested, you know, in really what they're doing. They're looking for food. Uh, you can usually get quite close to them. And nice thing is water is usually crystal clear, and you can really see what's going on as far as, you know, what the fish is doing, uh, how they're reacting to the fly. But deeper water cruisers, you know, fish that are in maybe three to four feet of water, are still very catchable. You know, it's just a whole different, maybe it's just in that bigger environment, they're, they're maybe not quite as uh, spooky or, you know, these fish are generally much bigger. 
So maybe it's just they just need to get food, and they're a lot more opportunistic maybe in the way they feed. Here, a couple things come into play, and they you fish for permit, and I would say it's very similar to permit fishing, mm. where you see these fish cruising, and you've got to get that fly out in front of them, but it's also got to sink at a speed where it, it comes down into their line of sight. So, you know, you're, you're playing sink right now. Uh, you're playing the speed of the fish, the distance you cast in front of them. You know, so it, it, it's quite a challenging thing to do it uh, with consistency uh, in that scenario. But it, it, it's great fun, uh, as you know. Those fish also seem to be a little more receptive to a wider range of fly patterns. Anything from, again, a, a, a strip text nymph to a, a crayfish pattern, a leech, you know, that type of thing, you know, will work one better than another on any given day. They will also show color preference for some reason on a given day. So I'd always have at least a tan, a brown, a black, and olive option available. Do you find, and this is just a personal question, do you find that the temperature of the water plays a role in how aggressive they are? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they can tolerate, you know, pretty warm water uh, as we as we all know, I'm not sure they always feed the best in, in warm water. Again, I'm just going on my experience. Favorite temperature range is probably in the 65 to 75 degree range. I know that, again, just drawing on my, my Great Lakes experience is that those fish will be up in the shallows. Usually they'll start moving up when the water temperatures hit around 60 or so. But once you get those shallows up into the mid-70s and stuff, those fish are not there anymore. Maybe they might move up for a brief period early in the morning or in the evening. So I think, you know, they drop off to, to find a little more comfortable temperature range. Now, in a, in a smaller river or stream, you know, they really don't have that option. So I think given the opportunity or if there's depth to work with is that they do have a preferred temperature range. The next question is one that I hear often from many listeners of the show, and it's for Dr. Andy Danilchuk, and it's really just people looking for a follow-up on the 2016-2017 Bulkley study that they did on steelhead. You know, the, the Bulkley River study to me was like a really critically important one because obviously focusing on wild steelhead and uh, thinking about how they respond to catch and release. So um, back in 2016, that was sort of the first year of our study where we looked at how steelhead responded to being captured, handled, and released by recreational anglers. And then we also did some social science at the same time in terms of how anglers communicate to each other about best practices. And so the, the science from that study, uh, which was recently published, showed that really the, the biggest impact or what had the biggest effect on steelhead, how they responded, was air exposure and water temperature. And so that steelhead that were air exposed for 10 or 30 seconds showed the greatest fallback. So when they when you released them back in the river, they basically fell downstream, which likely has some energetic costs because then they have to move back upstream to where they were caught and to use that energy eventually to where they're going. We also showed that the so, uh, you know, our, our tips really to anglers was, you know, minimize air exposure, keep it to 10 seconds or less. And, you know, when, when the water's getting hot, it'd probably be uh, a good precautionary move not to even 
air exposed the fish because you know with with fish the the warmer the waters they're higher the metabolism so they're already kind of working really hard as it is so if you air expose the fish whether it's a steelhead or something else at warmer temperatures it's just an, an extra stress we also showed though that you know regardless of the duration of air exposure or water temperature, you know, the biggest thing that impacted mortality was hooking damage. So any fish that, and, and this is obvious, I think that for most anglers that, you know, if you, you know, if a hook gets into a critical area like the gills um, and the fish starts to bleed a lot, you know, obviously that's going to, that's going to impact um, survival. And, and we see that a lot across uh, a bunch of different species, not just not just steelhead. But this was really the you know one of the one of the first big studies that really looked quite comprehensively at uh, at wild steelhead and you know in um, uh, in a sort of a, a pretty robust and and healthy fishery. That science also, or the the social science was also neat that we did at that time, because you know apart from doing the science, we want to make sure that when we take the results and give them to stakeholders, anglers, our conservation partners, that we effectively know how to communicate the results so that it really starts to positively affect change as to how, you know, anglers interface with their fish and so that, you know, we improve the outcome for each and every fish that we we encounter. And so, you know, really that study, it was kind of neat. It was called peer pressure on the riverbank. And it, it was really focused on anglers' willingness to, to sanction others and, and how do we actually communicate effectively, you know, not necessarily the hazing and the, the bullying that sometimes we see, but more like the, the positive affirmation that when, when people are doing things well to, you know, give them a thumbs up and then also to effectively communicate what the best practices are. And I think that's where, you know, from from that first year, both the science and social science studies, you know, we, we fed this information back to our our partners. We, you know, distributed it on the, the Keep Em Wet website. We use we use Keep Em Wet Fishing as a avenue for translating, you know, the the deep scientific papers, which I end up writing um, or my grad students end up writing or my collaborators. And, and so translating it so it's like completely digestible and understandable by by everybody and so that was really the the you know 2016 2017 we actually went back and because there was this uh you know following a lot of questions from our stakeholders and and partners and, and just anglers in general and what we did is we compared fish that were caught in the recreational fishery to fish that were caught in the um, first nations fishery via Dipnet and Sane down at the uh, Witsat Canyon at the falls, formerly sort of Morristown Falls. And what was neat with that is that we demonstrated that, you know, although the, the Dipnet and the Sane fish tended to have a little bit more physical damage, some, you know, some scars from, from handling, that they actually ended up having a, a faster upstream migration than the angled fish. And we think that's because of where they were actually encountered. So they're the fish that in the in the dip net and the sane fishery, they're they're fresher. They're just coming up coming up the canyon, and you know they still have a lot of energy. They still have a lot of spunk in them. And when they're you know moved to the upper side of the falls, then they just you know they keep on going. They hightail it. And so you know, in the long and short of that is that you know we really wanted to to look at the impacts of uh you know recreational angling versus the the dip net and sane fishery and um when it comes down to it you know there wasn't a big difference between the three but across the board air exposure and water temperature impacted fallback in all of them 
Um, so it kind of supported what we found in the previous year, just with the angled fish that, you know, it's it, regardless of capture technique, air, air exposure and water temperature can have a, a negative effect on, on the response of steelhead. And so um, both of those, uh, th that study, I think we just, it was accepted. I forget what journal, but um, it will be circulating that paper as well. And that's, you know, to me, it was, it was a nice ending to that work up on the Bulkley because it, it not only just addressed recreational fisheries, but also other fisheries that are interfacing with the wild steelhead. Because in my mind, you know, after spending time there listening to all of the stakeholders, there's this, you know, this kind of tussle back and forth that, you know, sometimes there's finger pointing that it's like the anglers having a bigger impact than the, the indigenous and vice versa. And um, what's nice with this study is it's like, hopefully these studies are bringing everybody together and saying, listen, across the board, no matter what we do, it's, it's air exposure and, and being careful with at higher water temperatures that, that we need to keep in mind when we're handling um, wild steelhead. All right, I'm, I'm ready. Amy Hazel, guide, instructor, fly shop owner, really just an all-around badass. Amy works really hard at the Deschutes Fly Shop, which she owns with her husband, John Hazel. I called her with this next question. Okay, Tom from California would like to know the following. He says, with declining steelhead runs, how are you managing future plans as a business owner? Well, that's a very good question. And, you know, steelhead runs are ever fluctuating, although sometimes it just seems really scary, like watching, the, you know, in the past few years, steelhead runs declining. And, you know, we have a thriving trout business as well as a steelhead business, so we can always rely on a good season for trout. We have private lakes as well as the Deschutes River. We also have a permit over on the John Day River, which is a neighboring river, which is just chock full of smallmouth bass. And we run overnight trips and day trips over there, which is a good source of income that doesn't rely on steelhead returns. But of course, you know, steelhead have been and are our bread and butter. And we've definitely, in the past few years of seeing lower returns, we've definitely felt um, business suffer. And, you know, we, we, we keep building our internet business because we are a destination shop. If destination traffic goes down, we've got to find ways that we can drive uh, more revenue into our cash register, so to speak. So um, we invest more in our internet advertising. Um, social media, of course, is, is a great way of free advertising. We've invested a lot into our fly tying arena. Um, so we've got great fly tying materials and we're starting to do some fly tying uh, clinics, which is a little hard when you're a destination shop in the middle of nowhere because people don't come out here to tie flies. They come out here to go fishing. But if we can run clinics in the evening after the sun goes down when you can't fish, we could probably drive a little more business that way and, and get people to know that we have this humongous selection of fly tying materials, which very few shops actually really have like full-on selections of saltwater fly tying, steelhead fly tying. And one of the latest things is not just trout, but like all the Euro nymph um, fly tying specialty things like different types of slotted tungsten beads, regular tungsten beads, jigged hooks, 
um, all the stuff from Europe, different dubbings, that kind of thing. So steelhead returns, that it's a little bit out of our control. But one thing I will say about uh, steelhead returns is the real dedicated steelhead anglers, they're not really going to be, they're not really fair weather fishermen. They don't need to read a report that the steelheading is great and then they decide to go fishing. These guys book with us year after year. That's that's just what they do. They have a steelhead trip. And if they get great weather during their steelhead trip, fantastic. If steelhead returns are low, there is a silver lining to that cloud. And the silver lining is that when steelhead returns are lower, we don't have as many people on the river. And consequently, we can fish a lot more pieces of water during the day. And we end up usually hooking as many steelhead as you would during a medium good year. We hook that many steelhead in a lower return year just because there's a ton of great water available that hasn't been fished because no one's out here really fishing. And the guides are just guiding the regular clients. And we go out and do what we do, and it's low pressure. Uh, there's not so much wasting down the river, and there's not so much, you know, people low holing and, and feeling like you're on top of a whole bunch of other anglers. So, I don't know. That's the silver lining to lower returns. I don't know what we're going to do if steelhead returns completely tank, but what, you know, what is anyone going to do? We'll, we'll have to, we'll have to find other places to fish. We'll have to maybe start doing a small stream fishing on the, on the flanks of Mount Hood. I'm not sure. Do you think that somebody would be out of their mind to start a fly shop today? Um, I wouldn't say out of their mind, but yeah, no, a few fly shops have started in the past few years in, not in little town of Moppin, but uh, servicing the Deschutes River. And I don't think they're out of their mind. I just think it, it's a tough, it's a tough road to hoe. There's a lot of work involved in owning a fly shop. It's, it's a lot of dedication to um, being in here um, every day if you're the owner and you can pay someone to manage your shop, but if you do that, you're not going to be pulling much out of the shop for yourself. All you're going to be doing is running a shop that basically employs people, but doesn't really give you a ton of return back. Yeah. I don't, I wouldn't say you're totally crazy. I just think you have to go in with your eyes wide open that it is in an area like Oregon, let's just say there's a pie. I mean, even though you have internet sales and things like that, there is one pie and the more fly shops there are, there's more slices out of that pie. And I'd say that the, the, the hundred percent loyalty that, that used to take place, like that's my fly shop. I buy everything from that fly shop. I'd say that's more like, that's probably like 2% of the people anymore. Um, mm. I don't know, maybe 5% uh, that try to buy everything from their favorite shop because they like the people that own it or run it or they like the services that they provide or they like the fact that they keep stuff in inventory. That kind of loyalty is less and less these days uh, with the internet. And I think the next generation coming up, the younger generation of fly fishers, they're just much more willing to go searching all over the internet to find something $5 cheaper than the thing that they just, you know, the rod that they cast with the fly shop owner for a half an hour on the lawn if they can get it five bucks cheaper, they don't, they don't care about the fact that, you know, that rod was in stock and they were able to try it out. 
So that's kind of the way it's going. I think it's hard to own a fly shop, honestly. Do you think that you have to also be an outfitter and run guided trips to also have a successful fly shop? I think that it goes very much hand in hand. I think you certainly you certainly can service your customers better. See, we used to be an outfitter before we had a fly shop. And so we used to, you know, I'd be wearing a certain pair of boots. I'd be like, yeah, I love these Danner boots. You know, these are the best. Uh, go buy them at such and such a fly shop. You know, I love this rod. I think you can find it at this other fly shop, in, you know, this fly shop here or that fly shop there. And the reason we opened the fly shop is that your guiding life, really, there's a finite life to being uh, physically uh, how much you can guide. I mean, with the way with a we guide, which is with steelhead guiding, you're you're picking your people up at 4 a.m., you're rowing 10 to 15 miles a day down the river, you're finishing at 10 p.m., you barely get any sleep, you're completely exhausted, you do that for months in a row with very few days off. That's physically takes a toll on the body. And we we have seen over the years, many, many guides go down, um, whether it's like suddenly they've got a back injury, sciatica, um, they hurt themselves somehow, strain themselves somehow. But it's just, there. there is a kind of a finite physicality to being a guide. Now, my husband, John, is uh, 16 years older than I am, and he's still guiding. Um, but he's cut back a little bit too, just because, you know, your clients get older and some of them stop coming because they age out and you just, at at mid sixties, you're not taking on a whole bunch of new clients. I have a personal question. Yeah. Mentally, which one is more taxing, being a shop owner or being a an outfitter? Oh, that depends on the time of year you talk to me. Uh, this time of year, right now, is is mentally a little more challenging in the shop because you've got all this product coming in, but you have nobody coming through the door to buy it. Mm. And you have to pay for it. I think one of the things people don't understand about the fly shop is that um, all this stuff that we have, all those hundreds of rods you see on the rod racks and, and the, you know, 200 pairs of waders and boots, those are paid for. And they have to be paid for within, usually within 30, maybe 60 days of getting them in the store. And so, yeah, you got a lot. It's pretty stressful, like managing the finances. I'm the accountant. And so that's what I do. I'm balancing those books and um, trying to pay pay off all these bills that we we don't have that much traffic coming in. And when the river has challenges, um, with the fishing is tough or the steelhead returns are low and you get fewer people in the shop, you start to, to stress out a bit about that. Now, um, guiding gets more stressful too when the returns are low. I mean, when, when everyone's catching fish, it's pretty easy to be a guide and have to really work hard to find a one or two steelhead a day, which is, I mean, that can be any any year, even the most banner years we ever had. There are times when you hook zero or maybe one steelhead in a day, but that's it's pretty stressful on the on in from the guiding end. The thing I really didn't like or don't like when I'm guiding is to have to give a pep talk all day long 
about, okay, you're doing everything right, but, you know, we just have to keep covering water. Yes, this is very productive water. This is great water. The steelhead just have to be here, and they have to be in the mood to eat the fly. So there's a ton of stuff you cannot control about uh, guiding, and there are things that you can control about, you know, owning a business. Like, when, when we opened this business, I mean, I would work in here, 13, 14 hours a day because I was not going to let it fail. And, you know, at the end of the year, you're making maybe uh, $2 an hour when you own your own business after you work that hard. And that's just anybody that owns their own business can tell you uh, that's the way it is. But the other great thing is you can't get fired unless you fail. And if you work hard enough and keep all your irons in the fire, then then hopefully you won't fail. Yeah. I hope. Amen. (laughs) Well, I hope that answers the question because it is something that you hear a lot of people talking about these days. They go, you know, I want to be a full-time guide. And then when asked what their backup plan is, they they contemplate maybe owning a shop. But it sounds like there's really never, there's no time off when you're operating both. I mean, you can't, you can't just close up your doors and, and go on vacation and go fishing in at Christmas Island for months on end, which is what I would love to do. But uh, you, you, you just, you have to keep plugging away. And if you're not open every day, like we are closed on Sundays in January and it's a big deal to be closed one day a week, but I, it's so refreshing for us to be able to actually have a day off, like where you, don't have to come into the shop and you can actually do things around the house or, you know, yesterday was Sunday and I, I spent part of the day cleaning around my barn and, and mucking my horse stalls and taking care of my horses. And then I spent another part of the day uh, tying flies for an upcoming trip for Christmas Island. So I didn't even go fishing. It was a beautiful day. I probably should have, but I feel like there's so many other things I have to do and preparing for the next fishing trip is always, is always pretty fun. And I will go ahead and take this last question that was sent to me. This is from Dylan in Newfoundland. And Dylan says his question for the podcast is how I dealt with not having many people my age that were into fishing and hunting when I was younger Uh, Because he is 13 from Newfoundland, and it seems as though there are fewer kids getting into fishing and hunting. Hmm. So, Dylan, that's a really hard one. I'm now 36, so a lot has changed over the years. But that said, you do have a couple options from what I remember uh, about being 13. It's a really interesting transitional stage where you're finding yourself in the next few years, especially... Uh, you're going to go through a lot of changes where you're going to start to figure yourself out and, and you're going to need some alone time. So my advice to you is don't worry so much about the other kids to start. You know, Take this as something that's yours and then when you really feel like you've got a grasp on it and it is yours, then start reaching out and maybe bring some other kids with you. And, and you don't need to have 60 kids following suit, but maybe just one or two and then you can share it with them if you want to. 
As far as the generation overall, you know, my family's from Newfoundland. My dad's from Spaniards Bay. I actually don't know if you know that, but we used to go back there every year, and I'm very well aware of how small of, a, of a, an, an area, how small of a province it is. I mean, you're almost related to, to everybody. And there is a real deeply rooted culture there of of fishing and being outside. So I don't think it'll be as far removed there as it is in many other places in the world. Just as a side note, there is a fantastic program in New Brunswick, which I know seems very far away. But now with the world being so small and and us being able to contact each other with the click of a button, it might be worth reaching out to the Miramichi Youth Fly Fishing Program. I've seen a lot of young adults over the years get in touch with other schools and mold similar programs and bring them into their own school. And I would be more than happy to give you a contact for the teacher who heads up that program. So please feel free to just shoot me that email at info at aprilvokey.com or you can reach me how you did before in a private message and I will shoot you over a contact. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 